Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. We're back after a hiatus. Um, both Jordan and I took staycations. How, uh, how was yours, Jordan? Uh, it was pretty good, you know, mostly just looked at different screens than I usually do at different times of day, but it was somewhat similar. <laughs> what about you? Uh, yeah, I, I think I managed to visit every single one of the rooms in my house, and uh, it was exciting, really. Uh, but today, we're joined by election law expert Rick Hassan, whose election law blog is indispensable for keeping on top of developments in election law, as confirmed by then-Judge Brett Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings. Check it out. So Rick is joining us from uh, his home in California. His latest book, Election Meltdown, which we recommend as part of our summer reading list series, discusses the widespread distrust of elections as we prepare for the upcoming election. But first, let's catch listeners up on what the court's been doing since our last episode back on July 31st, summer orders lists. As background, the court issues three summer orders lists, which are almost exclusively denials of motions for rehearings. I didn't see anything really notable on those. Did you, Kimberly? Uh, So, Jordan, I think this is going to be something like my 10th term um, covering, and I've never, ever once seen anything noteworthy on any of these lists, and I'm not sure why they continue to do them. Um, But... We'll get our last summer orders list September 11th, so something to look forward to. We did get some action in voting cases, though, since the last episode. As you've reported, Kimberly, the court's been uniformly siding with government officials, judgments in COVID-related cases. That's been true across a number of different areas of the law, but it's been leading to overturning pretty much every lower court attempt at making voting easier during the pandemic. And that's what happened on August 11th, when the justices blocked an Oregon court's move to ease signature collection requirements for a ballot initiative aimed at overhauling the state's redistricting process. Only Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor noted their dissent. So a couple of days later, uh, the court actually allowed Rhode Island to relax its rules requiring either two witnesses or a notary for absentee ballots. Um, As you mentioned, that's kind of against the way that the court has been deciding most of these cases. But the court explained that here, unlike in the other cases, state officials actually wanted the changes and weren't being forced to make them by the courts. So we'll chat with our guest a little more about that in detail. Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch noted their dissent in that Rhode Island case, which some of our listeners will know does not mean the vote was six to three because the justices don't have to say which way they voted on these shadow docket rulings, which uh, makes totally perfect sense um, because these orders aren't consequential at all. I mean, yeah, it's pretty silly. Um, I continue to believe that if a justice isn't telling us that they dissent, then they really didn't dissent. I mean, the paper they're giving us says Thomas Alito and Gorsuch dissent. So uh, that's who dissented. I mean, uh, changed my mind. (laughs) So anyway, Uh, We also had two more federal executions scheduled for this week. Uh, That follows the Department of Justice's resumption of them last month after a 17-year hiatus. A lesbian Mitchell, the only Native American on federal death row, was executed on Wednesday after the Supreme Court rejected his stay requests late Tuesday night. And there were no noted dissents, no noted dissents, (laughs) uh, but Justice Sotomayor issued a statement saying she thinks that given that there are more executions scheduled for the coming months, that the court should, in a future case, case, clarify the law on how federal executions are carried out. And this is a good example of this whole noted dissent thing, because in a death penalty case, if even Justice Sotomayor isn't saying that she dissents, I think it's pretty clear what happened there. So 
Anyway. And the second federal execution of this week of Keith Nelson is scheduled for Friday, August 28th, the day that this episode will be released, though the episode will probably come out before the execution goes forward, if in fact it does go forward. And Nelson would be the fifth federal execution in the last couple months. Before July, only three federal prisoners had been executed in the last half a century. Well, things are developing rapidly there, but I think um, we're pretty caught up on what the Supreme Court's been up to. Notably, we haven't said anything about um, RBG and her latest battle with cancer, and that's because we haven't heard anything. So wishing her a swift and full recovery, um, but no confirmation from the court yet either way. And with that, let's bring on our guest, Rick Hassan, one of the leading experts on election law and a professor at the University of California, Irvine. His latest book, Election Meltdown, was released back in February and discusses the growing lack of confidence in America's elections. Thanks so much for joining us, Rick. It's always great to be with you. Before we get into what's going on with this particular election, can we just take a step back? Because election challenges like the ones we've been seeing at the court are pretty common in election years, and the court has used what's known as the Purcell principle as a kind of lodestar on how to deal with these emergency requests. Can you walk us through what that is and what it means for election officials? Sure. So cases get to the Supreme Court in two different ways. Um, Most cases, the ones we hear about, come through on the ordinary docket where uh, a case has been fully vetted through the lower courts and then it's um, finally decided by the Supreme Court after oral argument. But there's something uh, that's been referred to as the shadow docket. These are the emergency cases that come up. These are the cases that are um, the you know the death penalty cases. Uh, you know, they're trying to get a stay of execution. Uh, they're the you know stop the government from its nationwide in, uh, or stop the plaintiffs from getting a nationwide injunction against the government on immigration. And there's a whole bunch of election cases. And so it's not new that they're coming to the court now, although we're seeing more of them because of COVID. Um, and back in the um, mid two thousands, the Supreme Court got one of these emergency cases involving a a case out of Arizona where someone was challenging the state's voter ID law. And before trial, the plaintiff said, hey, what about an injunction that prevents Arizona from using its strict voter ID law before trial? And the trial court said no. Uh, When the plaintiffs went to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit said yes, injunction. They did it just before uh, the election. Case went to the Supreme Court on an emergency basis, and the court took the case and treated it like it was a regular case, granted cert, and issued an opinion, something that it almost never does. And the court said uh, that lower courts really should be wary of making changes to the election just before it happens. It can cause voter confusion. It can uh, make it hard for election administrators. And so um, I think I coined the term Purcell principle from this case. The idea is that courts should generally be wary of making changes to uh, election rules in the period just before the election. But I'm wondering what that means for people who are challenging election laws. Well, so it means that when you're going to challenge election laws, the earlier you can do it, the better. Now, you could be too early. Uh, if you're so early that you end up um, not having standing or uh, the case isn't ripe yet, uh, you know, there are all kinds of doctrines that the court can use to avoid it. Uh, but if you're too late, uh, you know, you're in trouble. So, you, so what we're seeing now is... Um, that both the Democrats and the Republicans are suing about election rules now, right? So there could be disputes about, for example, how to count absentee ballots that uh, don't comply with all the rules. 
better to resolve it now than the period before the election. Um, that, that, that's a good thing anyway, because you don't want judges deciding things when they know that it can affect an election outcome. Um, but, uh, you know, there's been this question of how far before an election does the Purcell principle kick in? And the Supreme Court's not spoken to that. The pattern we've seen, though, is that the court is still very wary of these last-minute changes. The pattern from the Supreme Court seems to be in these other cases, don't make the last-minute changes, and also the court's going to defer to state election officials a lot on what they want to do in these cases. And the other thing we're seeing, the other pattern is uh, a fair number of decisions splitting five to four of the conservatives against the liberals. So there's kind of a difference of opinion on is the timing issue and the concern about confusion more important than, say, uh, enhancing or preserving voting rights during a pandemic. So um, you talked a little bit about some of the challenges um, that we've already seen up at the court, which um, typically or mostly have revolved around the COVID crisis. What other challenges do you think might come before the justices before November? Well, we already had one major one come before the court that was election related to 2020. uh, And this involved um, the felon uh, disenfranchisement, reenfranchisement controversy in Florida. What happened in Florida is that uh, Florida voters passed a law that said that uh, if you were a felon and you completed your sentence, uh, you could be reenfranchised. Um, this could affect up to a million people. I says a, lo- a lot of people affected by this law. The state legislature then came in and said, well, we're going to interpret this uh, uh, initiative that voters passed, and we're going to say that it, you can't be reenfranchised unless you've paid all your fines and fees. And now there's a lawsuit over that. Uh, one of the problems uh, with Florida is that there's no central list of what fines and fees you might owe. Someone who's a former felon who might... Um, not know if they have fines or fees, may be deterred from voting because they wouldn't want to sign an affidavit declaring under penalty of perjury they don't owe any more money. And so plaintiffs are challenging this law. They're also arguing it's a poll tax. And um, the case was that a trial court had said Florida couldn't uh, uh, impose these additional restrictions on uh, felons voting. Uh, the case went up to the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit, sua sponte, on its own motion, took the case on banc. So the whole 11th Circuit is going to hear it. Plaintiffs uh, said that the timing was bad, uh, that they might not get an opinion in time. So they went to for emergency relief to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court declined the emergency relief. Uh, oral argument was uh, held in that case about um, a week and a half ago and um, in the 11th Circuit, and we'll see what happens. But that's a, that's a major case. I also expect that there are going to be fights over mail-in balloting, and uh, we have a number of cases, including cases that the Trump campaign, not the not the Trump administration, but the Trump campaign has brought in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Nevada, uh, there may be some others as well, and it would not be surprising to see some of those cases make it up on an emergency basis. Um, what we've seen from Chief Justice Roberts, who's the swing justice on uh, these issues, is that he seems to show extreme deference to state decisions about how to uh, maneuver uh, the uh, election rules during COVID. If they're co- if they're seen as COVID-like cases, then I think we'll probably see more deference from the chief. If they're seen as voting cases, then uh, you know we're more likely to see uh, the conservatives against the liberals on a five to four basis. Um, you know, already people are talking about Bush versus Gore too. You know, could there be a post-election challenge where the case gets decided uh, again by the Supreme Court? Certainly, we can conjure up those possibilities, but you know, things would have to really align in a particular way for us to have the misfortune of having an election that close that it ends up getting decided by the Supreme Court yet again. 
So at the risk of making you play out a, a nightmare scenario, uh, can you say a little bit more just about how that alignment could shape up for people who are either wondering or worrying about a potential Bush v. Gore situation again? Well, you know, it, uh, if the election is really close in the Electoral College and it comes down to, say, the state of Pennsylvania and there's a fight over, say, whether a certain class of absentee ballots should be counted. And of course, we're seeing much more absentee balloting because of the pandemic. And Pennsylvania is also one of those states that has moved to um, no excuse absentee balloting. They did that before the pandemic, uh, but that's going to be many more absentee ballots. Uh, you know, there are issues in terms of the competence of how election materials count those ballots. You, you can imagine some conflict about the counting of ballots, and uh, that's very similar to the kind of issue we had in Florida in 2000, 20 years ago. And so ultimately resolving that, it's, you know, it's possible the Congress resolves it, it's possible the state legislature tries to get involved and chooses a competing slate of presidential electors. I mean, there's all kinds of things we can imagine uh, where some of those disputes end up either in state court or in a federal court, but end up at the U.S. Supreme Court where they have to decide about the counting of additional ballots. And they're doing so in a, you know, not an, in a veil of ignorance, but doing so knowing that could affect who wins the outcome of the election. Whether the courts divide on party lines and ideological lines and what that would mean for the Supreme Court and what that would mean for the country, you know, it's really hard to say, but it would certainly be a high pressure, uh, very polarizing moment for the country as it was 20 years ago. And of course, 20 years ago, there was no Twitter. Uh, uh, social media would just be insane. Um, you know, uh, we've seen uh, this be a period of social unrest and social protests. Uh, it would not be pretty. So in your book, Election Meltdown, um, it came out just before we really realized the extent of the coronavirus outbreak here in the United States. Does the pandemic change any of the arguments that you made in your book, or have things actually gotten worse? Well, I think the pandemic ends up accentuating the problems. Uh, that is, uh, we have problems with election administrator incompetence. We have problems with dirty tricks where people try to... Um, uh, use uh, misinformation to convince people to not to vote, uh, you know, or to vote in a particular way. Um, uh, there are laws that make it harder for people to vote. And I think we're seeing all of these things play out. And, and of course, incendiary rhetoric about um, uh, elections being stolen or rigged. We're seeing all of these things play out kind of on steroids, thanks to the virus. So you have President Trump, I think he's made 71 statements, according to an account in The New Yorker, making claims about voter fraud or vote rigging just this year, over 700 since 2012. Um, lots of those statements now are about mail-in balloting and about supposed fraud. And I should say there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud with the use of mail-in ballots or otherwise in the United States. Uh, so that rhetoric kind of uh, heats things up. Misinformation about COVID uh, as a reason to maybe not vote or vote in a different way. Uh, we're certainly seeing all of these, all of these things. And uh, election administrator incompetence, of course, when you try to roll out a brand new system like mass absentee balloting for the first time mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic, you're going to have problems even in the places that have really good histories of election administration, but there are a number that don't have good histories of, uh, of election administration. So everything I worried about, I'm now worried about five times more. Uh, so I'm very worried. Uh, the, the thing that's most likely to save us is if we don't have a close election, and that, of course, is not in anybody's control. That just depends on what the voters choose to do in those states that uh, are crucial for the Electoral College. 
So before we let you go, you did a great video with our production team here at Bloomberg Law, and we'll put a link to that in our podcast notes. But is there anything you'd like to say about uh, the safety of voting in the upcoming election or what voters should do to ensure that their, their votes actually count? So I think that the most important thing for voters to do is have a voting plan. Uh, that is, they need to know that um, here's how they're going to vote, here's when they're going to vote. Voters should vote as early as possible and make sure that they follow the rules. Uh, the, the studies have shown, and there was a recent um, study uh, reported in the Washington Post by Charles Stewart of MIT, uh, that you are much more likely to have your vote not counted if you vote by mail. Uh, and that's often because voters are late. They're not getting their ballots in on time. Uh, and sometimes that's not the voters' fault. It's because the election administrators haven't sent it out or the post office hasn't delivered it. Uh, or technical mistakes are made. I recall hearing in New York that some ballots were rejected because people closed their secrecy envelope with a piece of tape rather than by licking the envelope closed. You'd think in a pandemic, licking the envelope closed would be the less desirable thing, but you know, you gotta follow the technical rules. So you've gotta make sure you follow those rules. Uh, and uh, so vote early, have a plan. Uh, and I think uh, lots of states are making um, arrangements now to have safe in-person voting. And if there's in-person early voting, that might be a better option for some people. And that's something that uh, is really, um, uh, things to seriously consider. I'm worried most about election day, long lines, uh, because uh, people who are expecting to vote by mail never got their ballots or it's too late to return them. The post office, and we have a lot of controversy with the post office. Now the post office is saying, uh, don't wait till the last minute to mail your ballot back. So, and in some states, it's easy to drop off your mail-in ballot in person. In other states, it's not. Some people are not physically able to go out to drop off their mail-in ballot. So have a plan. Vote early. Early and often, right? No. no. At least early. <laughs> I would not say often. No. I think we, uh, we want to avoid even the uh, joking about fraud uh, these days. Okay. Uh, will do. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate um, you uh, taking time out of what I can only imagine is a really busy moment for you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to join you. Kimberly, do you get the impression that Professor Hassan is uh, worried about anything? Mm, maybe about worried about me joking. Yeah. About. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, that was interesting, and we'll see how this all plays out. Um, expect a lot of, you know, shadow docket work for this election um, in the coming months. And So since we've been working for a whole week now, we figured it's a good time to give our listeners another break. <laughs> we're going to be off next week ahead of the Labor Day weekend, but look out for the next episode to drop the following week on Friday, September 11th. Until then, thanks for listening. It's Summer Orderless Day. Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.